When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. On today's episode, Leia, Han, and Jaina head out to recruit allies in the fight against the Yuzhan Vong, while Luke, Mara, and Jason begin searching for a mysterious planet they hope will end the war. Meanwhile, there's a growing movement among the Shame Ones on Yuzhan Tar, threatening Shimra's power close to home. It's Force Heretic 1, Remnant, by Sean Williams and Shane Dix, book number 15 in the New Jedi Order series. And joining me to talk about it today is my buddy Scott. How are you doing today, Scott? No, oh, I'm doing okay, but I have this bunion. No, I'm oh, fine. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm doing good. Well, Scott, we're getting close to the series entering its endgame here. 19-book series. We're on book number 15. Are you still enjoying it as we close in on the last few uh, books here? Yeah, I very much am. I, I think I'm <clears throat> more so than I was at the beginning even. Uh, it's it's really grown on me. I confess to Matt, actually, on our podcast we recorded last week that should release about when this one does. Uh, I'm really coming around on Legends, I think maybe in concert with being a little un- underwhelmed with the Disney canon stuff lately. So, yeah, I'm coming around. Might have a convert on our hands. We'll see. Oh, well, I'm glad that you're taking this journey with us. Now, the last book that you and I talked about together was Dark Journey by Elaine Cunningham. It wasn't our favorite story, but the string of books since then might be the strongest group of stories in the series to this point, at least in my opinion. What do you think about the last few books, including the one that we're going to talk about here later today? Yeah, uh, Rebel Dream, Rebel Stand, Traitor... And Destiny's Way, I, I love them all uh, for different reasons. Uh, Destiny's Way may have been my favorite one so far. Uh, I really enjoyed the naval battle stuff in Rebel Stand. I thought that was really strong uh, with the Lance uh, ship being driven in. And just the way that battle sequence was written, I felt in it a lot more more so than most of the battle sequences. And I don't, I don't really know why. Traitor was also really good. A bit slow to build and execute on the philosophy to me, but... And, and very different feel than basically all the other ones. Uh, but, I, you know, it really kind of came together at the end. And what we have is a, a new Jason uh, with a different perspective. You already had one, I suppose, but a different perspective than everybody else. So now that he's course. different, is he still your favorite character in this series? He, he was at about the halfway point. Yeah. Yeah, I think he, I think he is. He didn't, um, you know, the things I liked about him were how considered and how careful and how well thought out he was right and in, in, in intentional in his behavior and he still is that he's just come to a place where he can not justify but he can explain better the reasons that he's taking the actions that he's taking i think right and yeah. uh you guys did a fantastic job covering trader uh, i was so glad you had matt to do it because uh w- one thing he just he kind of let you take the space a little bit you know it's, you know we know it's one of your favorite books and he kind of let you let you you know <laughs> express some of that and i thought he did a, a great job with you oh yeah it, it was nice um i i have said traitor is my favorite story in the new jedi order series but um on this podcast obviously it's just me talking now for this series i have five friends who've agreed to talk about these books with me i have experience with these books this is the third or fourth time that i'm reading them Each show is basically we talk about the plot of the book and then it's mostly me asking you guys questions as (laughs) to what you like about them, what you don't like about them, 
and how they work for you. That one was a little different because Matt allowed me to kind of pontificate about my favorite book in the series. Yeah, right. And, you know, Matt is, um, having podcasted with him now for nine years, uh, just a fantastic listener and, and sharer of the space. I'm much less so. I'm like, let me shove my ideas down your throat. But Matt is uh, a very good host. Yeah, he is. But again, Matt, as I said on the last episode, K2 is my favorite. So that's, uh, <laughs> there you go. Now, Scott and I will get into this book, Remnant, here in a few minutes. But first, we have listener questions. Uh, two emails today. Scott, will you please read our first email? Today's first email comes from Daryl, who says, I just recently started listening to your podcast, and I love it. Can you do some stuff on the Shan family, including Bastilla and Satil? Well, thank you for the email, Daryl. Sounds like you're a big fan of the Old Republic era, and probably a big fan of the Knights of the Old Republic video games and the Old Republic online MMO. Anyway, the Shan family tree begins with Bastila's mother, Helena, an adventurer that traveled the galaxy hunting for treasure. When Bastila was discovered to be Force-sensitive as a child, she was given to the Jedi Order. Of course, Bastila fought in the Jedi Civil War, where she helped capture Darth Revan and turn him back to the light side of the Force. Bastila and Revan married and had a son named Vanner, who was not Force-sensitive, but would become an Old Republic senator. Now, Vanner had a son and daughter, both Force-sensitives, who would become Jedi Knights. We don't know much about the Shan family for the next few generations until Tassil Shan, a Jedi Knight during the Great Galactic War with the Sith Empire. She had a son named Theron, who was not Force-sensitive. To fulfill her obligations as a Jedi and to avoid possessiveness, Satil gave up Theron as a baby to be raised by her former Jedi Master. Daryl, if you want more information on the Shans, look them up. The Shan family tree is on Wikipedia. Yeah, I think everything's on Wikipedia. <clears throat> Today's second email is from Waylon Jesser, who says, Who are your favorite and least favorite authors and characters in the EU? What are your favorite and least favorite books in the EU? If you were to put four... EU characters from the prequel, OT, and sequel timelines in a Hunger Games-style arena, who would you pick? Thanks for the email, Waylon. Well, I've said it before, I don't have a favorite book, but if you're forcing me to pick just one, today I'll say Kenobi by John Jackson Miller. Now, I think there are three or four other books that I would put on the same tier as Kenobi, but they're all parts of different series. Kenobi is my favorite standalone book in Legends. My favorite authors include Matthew Stover, Aaron Alston, Karen Travis, and most of what Timothy Zahn has written. My favorite Legends characters include Jaina Solo, Gavin Darklighter, Thrawn, and Naminor, here from the New Jedi Order. Scott, I know you haven't read a lot of Legends stories, but... From the books you have read, are there some stories, some authors, some characters that you really like? Yeah. So, Diz Cannon, uh, Lost Stars, is still, I think, my favorite Star Wars book overall. EU, though, I'm going to stick with Destiny's Way. I mentioned it earlier. Um, I just I, I flew through that book. I don't know what it was exactly about it, but uh, I just loved it every second. Uh, Character-wise, Jason is still my boy. I probably like him the best. I do like Corrin Horn. Uh, Danny, Danny Quee is, is, uh, is up there as well. I like her too. Um, I'll stick with that. Now to answer the dark side of Waylon's question, <laughs> some of the stuff that I'm not a fan of, I would say the new rebellion by Christine Catherine Rush is one of my least favorite stories in the EU. And it includes one of my least favorite characters, Queller or Cooler, however you pronounce his name. Uh, there's no pronunciation guide that I'm aware of, so I've always called him Queller, but I've heard it the other way also. As far as my least favorite authors, for someone who wrote a lot of legend stories, 
I'm not a big fan of the way Kevin J. Anderson writes. Scott, I'm not going to ask you that part of the question, but let's answer Waylon's Hunger Games question. Are there four Legends characters that you'd like to see fight in a Battle Royale? Yeah, but before I do, you said the magic words, Battle Royale. Uh, Battle Royale, a book by Kushun Takami, is a fantastic book itself. Very much like Hunger Games. If you're into... It's very violent, though. Like, probably not for kids, but... Oh, yeah. The, the, the movie, extremely violent. Extremely yeah, violent. Right. The book is, in my opinion, way better than the movie. But if you're if you're a fan of these last one to survive type stories and aren't afraid of a little violence, go check that out. Anyway, sorry for the... <laughs> I, I've never read the book, Battle Royale, but I have seen the movie, and I really like the movie. Yeah, the uh, book is quite good. Anyway, uh, to get to the actual question, uh, I know she's technically not an EU character, but I'm picking Leia anyway. Um, always Leia for me in my heart. Uh, Danny, uh, Danny Key, uh, Kui, Jaina, and Mara. But, and I'm afraid I'm spoiling your answer a little bit, but no force powers. I want to see how inventive these women can get with their environments, right? Cool. So I'm also not picking any force sensitive characters. And the reason for me is I just get a little leery when people start asking, well, who's the most powerful? And they just start saying, when they say who's the most powerful force user, basically they just mean who's going to win in a fight. So I'm going to take the force out of it. I'm going to start off with Clone Commando Darman from the Republic Commando series. The Mistral Shadow Guard, Shada Dukal. Kir Kanos, the former Imperial Royal Guardsman. And to throw an alien in there with a lot of strength, a lot of inventiveness. How about Chewie's son, Lumpo Raru? I'd like to see those four go at it. And I think, honestly, I could see a way where any one of the four would best the others. All right. Thank you very much for the email, Waylon. Now, listener, if you have a question for the show, you can send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at legendslounge1. And if you'd like to get your voice on the show, you can record an audio question and email it in. Just please help me out and record it in MP3 or MP4 audio format. Now it's time for today's book, Force Heretic 1 Remnant, by Sean Williams and Shane Dix. Scott, are you ready? I'm as ready as we'll ever be. Let's do it. Grab yourself a drink. Let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. The story begins with Saba Sebateen, returning home for a ritual for a close family member. The barbell finds in place of that home a roiling fireball of a planet. As far as she can tell, there are no survivors. But she does see a quartet of coral skippers escorting a sack-like vessel away from the planet. Letting grief fuel her rage, Saba destroys the coral skippers, then brings her wrath to the ovoid vessel as well, which seems to be completely defenseless. It is an easy kill, and out of the sack pour her kinsmen dead in the void of space due to her unchecked rage. On Mon Calamari, Chief of State Cal Omas gathers a trusted few to engage in a new mission, to rejoin the far-flung edges of the galaxy to the Galactic Alliance, following three years of fighting. The war has dashed hope and destroyed infrastructure. There are whole systems that the government hasn't heard from in months. Cal wants to bring them back in the fold. The Council agrees, but Luke proposes more, an emissary to the Remnant Empire and the Chiss Ascendancy to bring them into the war as allies. Furthermore, Luke has another idea that he wants to pursue in the Unknown Regions, something that might win the war. Omas agrees, and the parties engage to stitch the galaxy back together while the threat of the Yuzhan Vong remains. Jaina arrives on Mon Calamari, where she's assigned to accompany her parents as part of the diplomatic missions to stitch the out-of-touch worlds back into the Alliance. There may be rogue governments in place in some of these locations, so a military arm is being included. Also tagging along is Jag, with a Chiss contingent. Jaina reports for duty when she's contacted by Tahiri, who claims that Anakin, the deceased Anakin, is trying to kill her. When they track Tahiri down, 
they find that the young Jedi is in a panic. The girl is dirty, underweight, and thrashing about, screaming Anakin repeatedly. Tahiri is sedated and taken to a med center for observation. There, the young Jedi has a vision, or dream, of a sacrificial ceremony in which body parts are being put back together and given life. But the abomination being assembled is scarred and burned, and has her face. Meanwhile, Luke assembles his team to discover the living world Zonama Seacott, the planet Vergeer mentioned in her story of meeting the Yuzhan Vong. This team consists of Luke, Mara, Jason, the young healer Tekli, an excited Danny Kui, and a reluctant Saba Sibatine. Danny thinks Zanama Seacott is a myth, but finds the prospect of finding it exciting. For Saba, she doesn't trust herself after killing her kin. She was blinded by hatred and anger. She doesn't feel like an asset. Only when Luke indicates it to be a hunt for the planet does she acquiesce to joining the mission. But before they leave, the mission planning is interrupted by a call for Tekli's help with Tahiri. Tahiri flees the abomination with her face, and the abomination itself flees some sort of reptilian god. She's crawling at first, unable to run safely in the dark passageway. Boxen appear, and she backs away, bumping into a ladder. She climbs, but below she feels the other Tahiri beginning to climb as, as well, and later still, the reptilian god behind them both, calling her name. Tahiri awakes, screaming, and Jason is there to calm her down. Answers are less forthcoming. Jason asks what happened, but Tahiri is reluctant to share any details about the secret she's carrying in her heart. She wants to talk to Jaina, not even sure why she wants to talk to Jaina. Jason tells Tahiri of the living planet, Zonama Sakat, and how he is about to embark on a mission to find it. He uses the Force to help Tahiri fall into a deep sleep. When she awakes, Tahiri finds that Jason left a note behind. You will always be family to us. Elsewhere, Naminor hides in the underground tunnels of Yuzhantar. He's bleeding, starving, thirsty. The former executor is in constant pursuit from those that would have him captured and executed. Naminor comes across a shamed one and bullies him into taking him back to the shame one's community of others. There, he finds over a dozen shame ones who have formed a mostly self-sufficient colony. Naminor asks to stay with them, promising that if he rises again, they will have their honor restored. He learns this group is outside of Vong culture. They even worship different gods. The Jedi. The Jade Shadow emerges in the Imperial Remnant to a slaughter. The Vong are pummeling Bastion with firepower that the Imperials can't hope to match. The Empire are retreating to save their citizens, and the Jade Shadow jumps in to help. They contact Grand Ample Pelion, who leads the escape, and offer him some information. How to get rid of the Yomosk and fight the Coral Skippers. The Imperials jump to Yaga Minor, but Pelion is injured in the retreat. He's not expected to survive. On Yaga Minor, Jason meets with the Moff Council and offers his opinions and advice. First, they have at least one spy in their midst, and the Vong certainly know where they are. Second, he can help the Empire, teach them better ways to fight the Vong. And last, he invites them to join with the Galactic Alliance, no strings attached, to work together against the Yuzhan Vong. Moff Flennick scoffs at Jason, chastising the young Jedi. But a call interrupts. It's Pelion. Recovered enough to issue a direct order to Flennick to do exactly what Jason is telling him. The Imperials jump to the planet Barosk, while Pelion meets with Jason to learn more about fighting the Vong. Reviewing footage of the attack on Bastion, they determine that the invasion was not about resources or destruction, but about obtaining slaves. The Vong need soldiers. Leia visits Tahiri in the infirmary and asks her to come with them on their mission to stitch the galaxy back together. Tahiri longs to, but has doubts. She has no idea what she's really going through, the dreams she still has, that she can't possibly share. Still, she can't stay in the hospital bed forever, so she agrees to join. The mission heads to Galantos, a planet near the Kornacht Cluster. With valuable shipbuilders and engineers, Leia thinks this region could be helpful in the war effort if the planet's inhabitants, the Fia, can be brought back into the Alliance. 
It doesn't take long for things to go a little sideways, Uncle Antos. When Leia and Tahiri go for a little tour of the city, they're harried by a very nervous Fian chaperone. But as she returns to her quarters, Tahiri is tugged by the Force. Someone has stayed here recently, and she goes to investigate. She finds a silver necklace molded in the shape of the Yuzhan Vong god Yan Yamka, the Slayer. Quickly, Tahiri ignites her lightsaber and attacks. No one. Jarred from her vision, Tahiri collapses, remaining in a deep, uninterrupted sleep. Jaina and her parents view the recording of events and are alarmed, but they have a mission to complete. Leia has heard strange news about the Yavetha, a race from the Kornacht cluster who attacked Galantos in the past. Strangely, the Fia no longer fear the Yavetha at all. Han and Leia decide to send Jaina into the cluster to look for answers. And look she does, but what Jaina finds is a completely destroyed fleet, in pieces, orbiting the similarly destroyed Yavethan home, Nazoth. She suspects the Yuzan Vong. Jaina and her wingmates pick up one sign of life from the planet below, an active but silent frequency communicating with them through clicks of a mic only. But when they engage to discover more, the Yavethan responsible for the clicks says he is the last of his kind and will be remembered as a warrior, blowing up his ship and taking one of Jaina's wingmates out with him. Meanwhile, Jag is going a little stir-crazy. He wants to get back to his squadron, but takes a quick detour to find the object Tahiri was holding before she started fighting her invisible foe. She finds it, and some sort of receipt on the ground near the site of the scuffle. Proceeding to his ship, Jag finds an alarming message on his flight screen that disappears just as quickly as he can read it. You must leave here immediately. Jag does, without warning Han or Leia. Between the communications grid being purposefully unfixed, Tahiri's episode, the Vong pendant, and the cryptic message in his cockpit, Jag is starting to get a very bad feeling about what is happening with the Fia. That bad feeling is immediately confirmed. The Vong have entered the system, and moments later, Jaina emerges from hyperspace with her remaining wingmate. They need immediate assistance. Namanor has been with the Shamed Ones for weeks, and they finally entrust him with the story of their beginning of their gods. It's the story of Anakin Solo and Vuo Rapung on Yavin 4, a story we're familiar with. Namanor sees the possibilities in the story as a threat to Yuzhan Vong society, but there are too many versions. Namanor insists that these stories must all have originated from one source, but none of these workers knows who. The story was dangerous to the whole Yuzhan Vong society. If the gods were disproved, it was possible the Vong way of life could fall apart entirely. But until Amanor could find the original source, he would be nothing more than an annoyance to Shimra. Still, he had a plan. Tahiri is in a desertscape dream as she flees the thing with her face that, in turn, flees the reptile god. The thing with her face accuses Tahiri of leaving him and insisting that she remember. Ryana, the Vong personality implanted inside her brain during her capture? Tahiri awakens to the sounds of sirens. Quickly, she, Han, and Leia run to the Falcon. They get help from an unknown source along the way, and that unknown source begs Tahiri's help once they get to the hangar. He must get off the planet, and he needs a ship. Tahiri convinces another pilot to open her own ship to the mysterious helper, then falls back as the Falcon takes off. The battle above is fierce. The twin sons in Salonia battle the Vong while the Falcon disappears around the planet to meet with their mysterious helper. The stranger won't identify who he is, but says they can trust him and that his people are distributed far and wide and deal in information. The stranger tells them that the Fia struck up a bond with the Peace Brigade, giving them details about the Yavathan weaknesses in exchange for protection. The Vong then used that information to wipe out the Yavathans. The stranger also has a recommendation for Han and Leia's next stop, Bakura. He fears that the Psy Ruvi might use a lack of focus from the Galactic Alliance to expand their own power. The stranger won't share details about who he is, but to hear he puts the clues together. He's a Rin. The Yuzhan Vong arrive at Borosk looking to collect Imperial slaves. Saba spots the bloated slave ship near the back of the Vong battle formation, taunting the Imperials with their captured citizens. Haunted by her failure to save her own people, 
Saba comes up with a plan to disable the ship and recover the people inside. Using an Imperial frigate as bait, they allow the slave ship to capture Saba and Danny. Inside the slave ship, Saba and Danny are dropped into a jelly-like substance. They pull themselves through the sludge until they find an opening. It's too small for them to fit through, but it is big enough for Danny's mechanical spiders. Detecting only two Vong on the ship, the spider droids poison the warriors. But not before the slave ship starts to pull away from Jason's rescue ship, the Bone Crusher. Quickly, Saba tells Jason to pick them up at their current location. Then, she slices through the wall of the slave ship with her lightsaber, shooting all the jelly-coated slaves out into the vacuum of space. Just like at Barib 1. But this time, Jason's there to catch them. The Bone Crusher arrives just in time and uses its tractor beam to pull the survivors inside, where the droids free them from the quickly freezing jelly. With the rescue a success, the Imperials destroy the Yuzhan Vong Yamask, forcing the Vong Commander to retreat. On Yuzhan Tar, Namanor's settlement is attacked by Vong warriors. The former executor runs, following another shamed one down the slimy tunnel created by a chukka. The two work together to remove the chukka cap that seals the end of the tunnel and falls into the depths of Coruscant's own caverns below. When they land, the shamed one, a warrior named Kunra, is hurt badly and begs for assistance. Nominor agrees, but makes it clear Kunra will do exactly as he is told, or Nominor will end him. For now, Kunra agrees. Jaina finally grabs a good five hours of sleep, only to be awakened by Jag with news, both good and bad. First, Jason is alive, and his mission a success. Second, the Fia are ready to embrace the Galactic Alliance. Third, that their next mission appears to be at Bakura, based on advice from an unknown Rin. Then the truly bad news. Based on the Vong targets, Jag feared that the Chiss might be next on their list. After all, they were Imperial conspirators and no friends to the Alliance, and might be swayed to work against them. Lastly, most importantly, Tahiri collapsed and dropped a Vong amulet. Jag is worried about Tahiri, and now Jaina is too. Namanor and Kunra meet with a shamed one named Shunmi, one of the true believers in the Jedi, still living topside. They conform that it was the looting, and not any heresy or the executor's presence, that brought the raid down on the settlement. Nominor realizes that the heresy may never reach Shimra, so his plan evolves. He shall bring the message. But you'll need Shunmi and Kunra's help. They must tell more shamed ones, accelerate the message. A refined message, though, a cultivated one by Nominor, a heresy that will stick, consistent and powerful. Nominor decides to pick a new name, a name that will echo across all castes. Yusha, the prophet. Pelion gathers the moths to reveal his plan, to join the Galactic Alliance. The Empire is irrelevant, he insists. The only way to stay relevant is to live on. Treason! Some cry, but others shout them down. Pelion is right, and in the end, he has Imperial approval to treat with the Galactic Alliance and to press forward on the Vong rather than to sit and wait. While they have agreed to the Alliance, Jason can't help but think most of the Moffs resent them more than like them, and he doubts the health of the Alliance. Still, Mara insists, sometimes it's harder to make a friend than to fight an enemy. The story ends with Peleon sending Captain Yage on a mission with Luke to find Zanama Sakat. As they're about to leave, a call comes in from Han. They are indeed headed for Bakura. And upon questioning, Leia gives an uncertain response that Tahiri is still putting the pieces together. Both of these pieces of news bother Luke, but he puts the fears aside and focuses on finding what he hopes is the key to ending the war. Zanama Sakat. Time for a break. When we return, Scott and I will talk more about Force Heretic 1, Remnant, by Sean Williams and Shane Dix. I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from Star Wars Legends. But let me take a moment and recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Aftermath, Empire's End is the conclusion to the best-selling trilogy about the final days of the Empire. Nora Wexley and her team hunt for Imperial Grand Admiral Ray Sloan, who's searching for the mysterious Gallius Rex. And it all culminates at one last battle on the planet Jakku. Will Nora and Ray Sloan be able to stop Rex from implementing the Emperor's final plan? Find out in Aftermath, Empire's End by Chuck Wendig, the final book in the Aftermath trilogy. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today, Scott and I are talking about Force Heretic 1, Remnant, by Sean Williams and Shane Dix, the 15th book in the New Jedi Order series. All right, Scott, before we get into the specifics, we spoke earlier in the episode how this string of books is a really strong string of about five or six books back to back. What are your overall thoughts on this one? Because... I think this one continues the string. I think this is a strong book. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, it takes it, it takes a less military approach than some of them, um, right? You've got kind of these three different plot lines you're following. Uh, all three of them are very interesting. Uh, I'm I'm curious what your favorite of those three might be. Uh, I'm not, you know, we, we've talked before about my feelings about the Vong. I'm not super interested, but I do kind of like this burgeoning religion kind of like coming through the undergrowth for them uh that that kind of preys on their cultural weaknesses right uh it's it's an interesting it's an interesting path so yeah i in general i agree i think it's a strong book i really enjoyed reading it um yeah i'm sure you can guess mine i'll let you take a guess at that here in a minute but let me try to guess your if not favorite part one of your favorite parts of this book in general i would say scott you enjoy high fantasy a little more than i do i would think the strange dreams that tahiri is having throughout this book that would be something that you would find pretty fascinating i'm interested so i don't know whether they're just guilt-ridden dreams or whether it really is some sort of more manic maniacal force within her from the very real torture and experimentation like they could have left something inside of her that that she's like a sleeper agent somehow they maybe didn't even do it on purpose it's just they only got so far you know in making Ryana is how you said it i think uh i, I say Ryana. yeah uh so i'm i'm interested in that I, they could just be dreams because from a character driven perspective you could definitely have Tahiri just having an immense amount of guilt for living on when Anakin did not and for feeling this closeness to this family that, yeah, in all likelihood, she would have eventually been a part of of the Solo family. And so there's probably a lot going on inside of her head, but it feels feels like there's a little bit more to it than that. And yeah, I'm I'm interested to see if if she ends up playing a bigger part and maybe ending somebody that we care about in star wars we have seen dreams quote unquote before Uh, i guess one of the most famous is the scene in revenge of the sith where anakin has the dream of padme in pain we also have seen visions in Star Wars, where we didn't actually see it, but in The Empire Strikes Back, Luke has a vision of Han and Leia being tortured in Cloud City, which makes him leave his training on Dagobah early. Always in motion, the future is. Yeah. 
the descriptions of whatever is happening to Tahiri, to me, don't feel like dreams, and they don't feel like force visions. So you're right. What else could there be? Yeah. These just feel different. Interesting. For So that's something I can keep my eye on then, as to whether or not this feels... Whether or not they bring this to a satisfying conclusion because it feels like they're setting something up something real and something impactful and if they end up just being dreams or or something to me that would be too bad i also find it interesting the organa solo family obviously love tahiri they're distraught over anakin's death but they feel bad because of how close Tahiri and Anakin were, and they feel bad about how Tahiri is handling it. I think it's interesting that the one guy that's a little bit outside of that is Jag, and he's a bit suspicious about what's going on here. Yeah, they know her. They should they should be more concerned than he is. This is abnormal behavior, and they... Yeah, maybe they're distracted. By I their think own they're feelings. concerned, but I think they just want her to feel better. I think, yeah. I think, like they they still think this is a part of the grief and agony she's feeling over surviving when Anakin died. I think, at least the way Jag is looking at it, he's looking at it as something else is going on here, and as you said, maybe something sinister. Yeah, it's interesting. We do get. Um both Jason and Jaina. And and I think very normal for Jason. I think he's very kind of in touch with others and their feelings. And He's he's very empathetic. Yes. Very, very empathetic. Great word. That's the word I was looking for. Thanks. Uh, Jaina, a little less so. Like, she's, she's very much more internal. I don't mean to say she's selfish necessarily, but, like, I don't I don't think everyone else's feel-goods are really on her mind a lot. But she does have a moment in this in this book where she's, uh, she's worried about Tahiri and says her grief while different than mine, might rival it, you know, with Anakin. And um, she even, she says it somewhat beautifully. She says, paraphrasing, you know, this is, this is a loss from something that wasn't given a chance to grow. It's a loss of something that could have been, right? And that can be even worse, the, the, the lost opportunity, right? Do you have any early ideas of what could happen in the future with Tahiri? Or at this point, are you waiting for maybe more information in the next book, Refugee? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't put a bunch of time into theories uh, yet. But I, I, yeah, I'll just say it feels like more than nothing. It feels like more than guilt. Uh, it feels like more than processing grief. I think there's something. Um, and she's clearly got knowledge and information that's been pl- implanted that originally I thought it was going to be an asset. Well, it has been an asset, right, so far. They've used it to great effect many times in this yes. series, uh, the, the knowledge that she has. But it would be a really interesting piece of storytelling if that came around and bit them, right, and instead became a huge negative instead of the positive they've been using it for. So... Both sets of our heroes have been sent out to try to bring the galaxy back together underneath this new government, the Galactic Alliance. It makes sense that Leia's group is the one that is going to see the most people. Leia is the diplomat. Luke, however, is going after... Zanama Seacott. The only reason Luke goes through the Imperial Remnant is that's on the way to the Chiss where he believes they have some information about Zanama Seacott. But I would contend that Luke's group at this point has had more success than Leia's group has because they are able to help the Empire. They're able to bring the Imperial Remnant at least to the table with the Galactic Alliance, and this is the new Jedi Order, most of the credit, I would say, goes to Jason. Yeah, it feels that way. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. Both both of the 
both of our sets of heroes here, they kind of stumble into these missions and end up doing, I mean, I guess bringing the Empire in, you know, into the fold was part of the goal, but they didn't plan to get waylaid there for that long and to really go through all of this and, and earn that earn that alliance in that way. It no, felt, obviously they didn't show up thinking that the Yuzhan Vong were going to be there attacking the remnant. And the same thing with with Leia and Han. They hoped that this was just a matter of like, okay, hey guys, we're back. We want you to get involved. It's dangerous out there. We need everybody to, to pitch in. And what they end up doing is uncovering a plot as well and saving, you know, a, a planet of of people. And, and I guess you could say, you know, one of the things they stop is the creation of a, you know, a slave army, right? Um, yeah. So they, they stopped that, I suppose. But you don't know. Does the Galactic Alliance really get much out of having Galantos join the fold? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'll see that they provide a bunch of value in the upcoming books. But the, the, the only thing we know of is there was some sort of uh, subspace transceiver for that area of space. So if nothing else, they're at least able to bring the communications in that area of space back online. Right. And I don't know how that works, right? Like, I don't know whether that just allows them to reach Galantos or whether it's a way, you know, a way station for other communication to reach a bunch of other places. I don't know. If that's true, then then maybe that will have a lot more value to the Alliance than it appears on its face in this book. But I would agree, getting the Empire in the fold is huge. And yeah, I'd say Luke's, Luke's group was, at this point, on paper, it looks like more effective. And yeah, Jason's coming into his own. There's a, a brilliant little piece in there where, uh, you know, Jason's trying to get into the battle and be more engaged. And Pelion's like, no, no, you're a leader. You gotta, you gotta tie win this up, right? Lead from the back. You know, your your people need you to be here for them. Uh, and you can kind of see, they hit you over the head a little bit with it. This is the new Jedi Order. This kid's gonna lead, right? Yeah, it's not subtle. I'm not gonna say it's not subtle. What one of my favorite scenes in the book, honestly, is the first time Jason meets with the Moff Council when Pelion is still in the coma, and just how he deals with them. He remains his mother's son. He's diplomatic. He's calm. When he's talking to Burita, you mean the first, the first time? Well, that yes, uh, exactly the the general. I'm sorry, I said the Moff Council, but you're right, it's the general that he meets the first time. He's calm, he's diplomatic, but he's still authoritative. He has knowledge that he knows the Empire needs, and he's also not going to be talked down to because of the differences in age and the differences in life experience that he has with this general. But he also doesn't try to use the force to influence him he still wants the general to make his own decisions i just think it's a pretty cool scene in this story it is i agree that and the following scene with flenick uh, are both similar in that respect right he's being talked down to but he stays above it somehow without really appearing to be too elitist right like the, no, Je- the jedi have this mystique about them where you know non-jedi non-force users they think of them as snooty elitists, right? And, and, so- and we had a scene in an early book where Danny actually says that to Jason, you know, because Jason th- is a deep thinker. He thinks about all these things. And Danny actually says, well, what do you think you're above everyone? And, right. and in these scenes, he doesn't. Yeah, that's when he was really struggling with the philosophy and, uh, you know, being exactly. above it and even being above the other Jedi, which is super snooty elitist. Yeah. But in, you're right. In these scenes, he he stays composed above it all kind of above the fray without being elitist. I'm sure they still felt like he seemed elitist, but it didn't feel that way to me, right? And and we get to see inside Jason's head. We know what Jason's gone through. We see his thought process here. And yeah, it's not the nebulous, philosophizing Jason of the first part of the New Jedi Order, this is now a much calmer, much more focused Jason where I'm not going to say he's task oriented or anything, but he's just he's focused on what he wants to do much more so than he was early on. And and frankly, like for a lot of this stuff, he's just very matter of fact with these generals. It's like this is the way it is. 
I'm not convincing you or trying to do anything other than tell you the facts that are here, right? And you can insult me all you want, but these are the facts. What are your thoughts to this point on the legend, the myth of Zonama Sikot? Well, I thought you were going to go a different way. Uh, I thought you were going to ask me about, about the prophet stuff. Uh, oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> Zanama Sikat is interesting to me. I'm not going to say I put a ton of headspace into it. I think they're trying to keep it, you know, keep it shrouded in mystery. Uh, I don't know how much good theorizing a bunch would do, but it feels to me like something about that planet drew the Yuzhan Vong to it. And there's something that maybe that planet learned from the Yuzhan Vong in their brief time interacting with it, uh, that maybe it adapted or developed, you know, a, some sort of key, um, has some sort of knowledge to, you know, to unlock. I don't have any specifics, but it feels like, yeah, there's probably some sort of element to that visit 50 years ago that the planet itself, a living planet that's capable of growth and I don't know about reason, but that they've maybe developed to defend themselves against, you know, against the Vong somehow. It also could be a total red herring. I hope, I kind of hope not, but I, I've heard you say in previous podcasts that it's not a storyline you, you love. Well, I will say Zanama Seacott, okay, it, it's not a red herring. It, there is an actual planet, Zanama Seacott. Spoiler alert, there, there is one. It's just, there's something about it. I'm not going to say what it is or not until we get there. But there's just something about the planet that doesn't work for me. And something about how the Yuzhan Vong and the planet, I, I don't really know how to describe it, but something with, with those two polar force, polarizing forces just doesn't work for me. Again, I'm not going to say what because I don't want to spoil it for anyone. It, it's up to you guys to make your own decisions on whether it works or not. It just it, It's not my favorite thing. Yeah. I'll say this, um, you know, in, in Greek theater, they have the, you know, the concept of deus ex machina, right? Where um, a a powerful god force kind of comes down at the end of the of the plot and just solves things, right? And so it, I, I will say, again, no spoilers, I haven't read it, but if it ends up being something like that, where we've had 19 books of of the fighting, but also the philosophy and trying to understand the new cultures and dealing with that internal angst uh, amongst the Jedi and the government. If it ends up just being something where Zanama Sakat is just like the solution and everything else just kind of goes away through this answer that this mystifying answer that just clears everything up at the end, that would be a little disappointing to me. 19 books of, of engagement and growth and character driven stuff. And then you know, if the curtain falls and a god says, you shall not be in this galaxy or something, that would right. that would be disappointing to me. Sure. Let's go on to my favorite plot in the story, which I think you know what it is. I've said before, Naminor is one of my favorite characters. I think I said it in the episode with K2. I was mistaken in my own head as to when... I thought he really, really started coming into his own. I thought it was at about the halfway point of the story, like around star by star. Turns out it's only in like the last quarter. But we'll see if you guys also enjoy the prophet storyline of Naminor gathering followers from the lowest castes of Yuzhan Vong society as a threat to the higher cast and a threat specifically to Shimra. But there are aspects of the Yuzhan Vong that aren't that interesting. They're just a warlike species that believe their gods are on their side and taking over this galaxy is basically a holy quest for them, almost like a crusade. But now you have something from within that can upset society as a whole. And the fact that this charlatan might be leading it 
this is when I started loving Nominor. This is when I started loving him. Because he's in no way, shape, or form a good guy. And he's not becoming a good guy. He's doing all of this as a show. That's all he's doing it for. Just so he can get back into the higher cast of society. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you feel... So he's... I, I'm. So this is the most I've ever liked Nominar for sure, in this book. Um, I feel like this plot, the, the prophet plot of, you know, this... Um, this story working its way through the lower castes and, you know, upsetting society. That's, that's tailor-made for me. Uh, you know, I, I love, I'm a big eat the rich guy. Let's, you know, throw off the shackles of society. Let's, you know, everyone unite and for the common good kind of thing. So I'm in for it. Uh, I'm a little confused about Nominor because like you said, he's doing this not because he believes in it, not because he, you know, thinks it's real or, or anything. He's doing it for his own benefit, which is, you know, par for the course. It's pretty much what he always does. But I've also seen little bits from him where he does talk about heresy in a real way where he actually does believe in the gods or think they're real. But it it feels a little inconsistent to me. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? I've never thought that Nominor really believed in the way the gods are venerated in Yuzhan Vong society. Like they're, they're I, it's real, almost but like, maybe they shouldn't hold the power they have over. Exactly. And on some level, Nominor is just always going through the motions in order to obtain an advantageous position for himself. The one thing that he does have, culturally, is an abhorrence to some of the mechanical things that are in this galaxy. He's learned to live with them because he's been here longer than any of the other Yuzhan Vong. But we still see he's not a fan of them. He still prefers the living technology, the living biotechnology that the Yuzhan Vong have. But just like with everything with Nominor, he's not above using the things he doesn't like in order to put himself in the most advantageous position that he can. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how far this myth goes, right? With Because he hates the Jedi, right? but now he's starting to, to venerate yeah. the Jedi. Yeah, it, and will, will the myth, how he refines this myth will be interesting. Does he put stuff in there that the technology is actually okay? Or is it just the Jedi, while they, you know, are gods and correct about all these things, they do have this weakness of technology or like, how does he, how does he massage the message so that it's still, um, it's, it still resonates with more of the culture of the Vong than just that lowest cast. Right. And then once he has refined the message, cause that's clearly in this book, what he was trying to do. He was trying to figure out the different versions, trying to find the oldest version and then refine the message from then, the question going forward is, once he has refined it, and he starts spreading it, spreading the message, and he gets more and more followers, then does he start changing the message a little bit? You know, in order to, okay, this is only so far I can go. Well... Maybe not. Maybe if we add in that, hey, the Jedi sometimes use these things called blasters. If they do it, it's fine for us to do it. Stuff like that. Just adding little tweaks here and there in order to gain more power. I agree with you. At, at some point, does he, does he embrace the utility of some of these things in a way that's maybe risky to offending a percentage of his populace, but he thinks the advantage gained by doing it is greater than losing that populace, right? How yeah. far will he take it and let it and let it grow? It's weird because in earlier books, you can see when Nominor is dealing with Savong La or when he was dealing with the high priest Jakar, 
How when we'd see inside of Namanor's head and he'd be like, man, you just can't deal with these true believers. <laughs> yeah. You just, you, yeah. you can't, you can't reason with them. You can't try to get them to see a slightly different way. But now he's trying to grow his own true believers, but people that believe in the message that he is sending, whether he believes that message or not. It'll also be interesting to see, too, because from the top down, the Shaper cast, some of them, right, are aware that the eighth layer or what? what are, I can't remember. The eighth the cortex. The eighth cortex, that that's BS. That doesn't exist. We know at least one, Nenyem, we know of a named one, Nenyem knows that, and there's at least a handful of other Shapers that are in that one Damatuk, or however you pronounce it, where she's working on the eighth cortex. And can he find an ally of sorts there somehow? Or will they embrace what they have, knowing it's false anyway, because they benefit from it? It'll be interesting to see if that dynamic comes to play. So before we wrap this up, going over a couple of the notes you sent, one of them made me laugh. And it's the one for our next co-host, Kat. In our roundtable, a handful of about, I don't know, six weeks, maybe two months ago, Kat said she wanted to see more love. She wanted to see more romance on the screen. Well, or on the page, I'm sorry. Shortly after that, we got Jaina and Jag. But now it looks like we may have another. We may have Jason and Danny. And you put down here that you think Jason and Danny are hotter than Jaina and Jag. So you're going to have to explain that one. I, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's cause I like, I like nerds. Da- Danny, Danny's a big nerd and I love it. And Jason's, you know, I, yeah, there's something about them that I just like better. I think, I think mostly it's, I love nerds. She's a, she's a big nerd. Uh, but I also just wanted to throw out some love for Kat cause she likes the steamy stuff. And, I'm sorry that she didn't. Hopefully, hopefully she's in the next book, I think, that you're going to cover. So maybe yeah. there will be more of that coming, I hope, for her sake. I think one of the other things, first off, Jason and Danny are newer. You know, we've now been with Jaina and Jag for a while. But one of the, at least for me, more fun things about reading the handful of Jason and Danny uh, pages are they're much more awkward than Jaina and Jag are around each other. Jaina and Jag are... Are you know they annoy each other, but both of them are pretty direct. They know what they want out of a relationship. Jason is pretty clueless. Let's face it, when it comes to women, and while Danny is a little more confident, it's not like she's really that outgoing when it comes with Jason. Yeah, no, she's playful but awkward. Yeah, and. You know, you and I, the last time we were together, we talked about really the beginnings of the Jag and Jaina thing, too. A dark Journey, that's kind of where that really kicked off. And we, we talked quite a bit about it on our episode, just that they feel like they're they're constantly flirting without realizing they're flirting. Or at least Jaina maybe doesn't know. And it's, it's, it's somewhat mean and bitey flirty, but like... They're also right on the verge of being killed all the time. Yeah, all the time. It's true, yeah. Yep. Uh, tensions, emotions are high and probably, you know, so are the pheromones. One last thing, little tidbit, little nugget before we wrap things up. We have the new government, the Galactic Federation of Free Alliances. Do you know how they came up with that name? The authors, I mean, not the people in the story, but the authors. So take the initials, G-F-F-A, Galaxy Far, Far Away. Oh, geez. That's okay. how they came up with it. Just right. just a little tidbit, just a little piece of trivia. Okay, good. that's good to know. Well, it's about time to wrap up. Listener, if you'd like to contact the show, if you have a question, or if you have a favorite character grouping you'd like to share, we didn't have one this episode, you can email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at Legends Lounge 1. Scott, thank you very much for joining us today. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a pleasure and a joy whenever I can do it, Aaron. Um, it's, it's fun to nerd out with you for, a, for an hour. 
and tell the listeners how the Davos Fingers podcast is going and, and what you guys have coming up. Yeah, we, uh, oh man, we just did a fun roast of Stannis Baratheon about a month ago that was, you can find that on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, uh, Davos Fingers. Um, that was a lot of fun. Um, we're continuing our coverage of the Kingkiller Chronicle. You can find us on Twitter, it's probably, and Blue Sky, uh, are the best places probably, at Davos Fingers. Um, uh, that's the best way to find us, yeah. And listener, I had an email a couple weeks ago that was just asking how to find Scott's podcast, how it was spelled. So I answered that listener in the email, but uh, just for anyone else looking for it, it's D-A-V-O-S, Fingers, Davos Fingers. I'm, I'm glad that uh, I didn't annoy them so much that they wanted to run away from it. It's good. Yeah. I mean, I listen to it. I know that you do, and I appreciate it. Listener, coming up on the next episode, Kat will join me to talk about the next book in the series, Force Heretic 2, Refugee, by Sean Williams and Shane Dix. You can look forward to that episode coming up on November 10th. Wow. Closing in on the end of the year. Thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends.